This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Sue Briley, welcome to Better Reading. Hello, thank you for having me. Well, I'm super excited about this conversation um, because I do think you're a remarkable woman. I read the first book written by your son, Saru, uh, and of course I saw the movie as well. So I'm going to introduce you and then I've got so much to ask you. Okay, Okay, Sue became known when Nicole Kidman played her in the Oscar-nominated film Lion, based on the book written by her adopted son, Saru. Saru's journey home to a small village in India with the help of Google Earth became an internationally best-selling book and inspired the film. But the story of how his adoptive mother, Sue, came into his life half a world away in Tasmania is every bit as riveting and now told in the uplifting and deeply personal book, Lioness. I really like the title too, Sue. Lioness explores the myth of motherhood how families are formed in many ways and how love and perseverance can bring us together. I mean, it is such a remarkable story. Okay, so first tell us about how it came to be that you adopted Saru. I mean, where were you in your life? How did you think that this is what you wanted? Talk to me about adoption versus biological. Let's get started. Right, okay, my word. So many big subjects. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I'll pick one to go with first. Okay. Well, quite honestly, it's the process was sticking to my decision that this was how I would form a family. It was, so you, didn't, you decided that because there are so many children needing homes that it was better to adopt than have one yes. yourself. Yeah. I felt this really strong need for purpose and why I was alive, living a life. And even though it was in a very tiny little town, you know, that didn't... Where were you? I was in outside a town called Somerset on the northwest coast of Tasmania. So right between uh, Somerset, which is a coastal town near Burnie, probably is the biggest town, and between, say, Elliot, which is a farming town. Is that where you grew up? Yes. So I lived there till I was um, 17 when I got married. What was the population of that? Just to give our overseas listeners a sense of how isolated. Oh, well, there probably only would have been about 5,000 people in that town. And especially in those years, I'm talking sort of 60s. Mm. I left there in 1971. Mm. So it was a small town. It was predominantly a place of... uh, a combination of people who worked in the industry, the main industry in the area, which was a a giant, filthy paper mill, and 
those that were farming because the area is an incredible farming zone with just this incredible rich red soil. And so it was perfect farming. But, of course, industry comes into any place where people settle and and that's what happened. And and in the early years there were um, a couple of big industries there which uh, over the years fell away and they're not there anymore when when all those things shifted offshore to China that was the end of the place it caused a lot of hardship in that whole rural come industrial region and put a lot of the people into hardship Mm. so you decided um, you're a young married couple yes so well really um, John was 25 when I married him I was 17 Um, but you know, that really just wasn't an issue. Really, I think back, and especially while writing my story, how things just seemed to flow along and fall into place. And I really feel and I follow this trust the heavens because it just seemed to be a quite a normal progression of things happening to me to facilitate my chosen life. So I'm very thankful for that. Even though there were very hard patches amongst it, in the end, it's the outcome. And, of course, every year we face that anew. You know, I have no idea what this year will bring for me in my life. I don't know if it will be to my satisfaction or greater happiness. 2020 is a pretty, you know, weird year strangest we know so Um, far but going back so you're 17 your husband's 25 at what point did you think that I'd I'd really like to adopt children and how do you go about it well we'd talked about this before we married because I'd already sort of set my heart on it way earlier and I write about that in the book when I first had this vision of a brown child which really is quite bizarre for a rural girl everyone was white there were no brown people in my life or community even, which is pretty incredible. But that's how it was for me back then. But somehow this thing popped into my head and then I just couldn't let it go. I just felt it was, you know, a sign, especially for me to take a direction. And once I had this direction, that really supported me as a young person growing up because suddenly I had this focus this thought that, hey, maybe there's something different for me, maybe this misery here and now is not my future. And I've really tried to live that in my life pretty closely. You know, your past is your past. It gives you ideas and knowledge and develops your personality and most of all your heart. Yeah, I understand completely. So tell me how... um practically how you went about the adoption process what happened because I'm sure it wouldn't have been easy no it wasn't because back then it was a service provided by a government department as it is today and it was also co-managed with a religious organization so it was managed in joint a church and a government department So the thoughts and views on adoption back then are very different, or they were very different. And it it was a program to address lack 
And the lack was with people who had this desire to be a family and they couldn't do that with their own bodies. So that was the roots of all of that. But that didn't include anyone who wanted to adopt just to give a child a go. And, you know, in a way I've sort of thought about that quite deeply. I mean, look, we took all hundreds of children's children from uh, the UK and Ireland, just shipped them out here to homes where they were horribly treated and, you know, we thought that was okay. But as the years went on, we never thought, oh, okay, there's children that do need a family and it is okay for people to want to look out for them. Mm. So that was the time when our dreams sort of came to a grinding halt because it just wasn't possible. We had to prove um, that we were infertile to access the adoption program and we couldn't do that. I mean, how do you prove that? Mm. Isn't that interesting? Were those conversations that you were having then, they must have been, people must have thought you were stark mad. Exactly. And that's really what drove us underground for so long. Yeah. Really, that's one of the reasons I find this time and the release of my story very challenging because only but my closest, you know, just a, a handful of people knew the true reason why we adopted. We just accepted whatever anyone else would think and just held our head up and just kept on our path. And that isn't easy to do. You know, in society, we are so controlling and, you know, in a way, again, looking at all of that, a lot of the things we do are to validate what someone else did. Well, and also it's to kind of, I guess, just behave and and be accepted in the community and be like everybody else, particularly a small community. So how did you get it over the line then, the adoption? The law changed and so suddenly you could apply to adopt. And how old were you then? I was uh, just over 30. Right. I think I was 30, I don't know if I was 31, but anyway, about that. (laughs) Yeah. So you waited all this time? Yes. It didn't seem that hard because, you know, really I must be like a dog with a bone. I just can't let things go like that. Uh, we, We lived our life. We did things. We built a business. We got a home, we did a lot of things, I supported my mother. You know, I did a lot of things still very... And during that time, you weren't tempted at all to have your own child? Not really. No? No. Okay. It was just not a thing that I... And as we'd waited so long, if I'd turned around and said to John, hey, let's just go the normal way, then I knew that just the financial circumstances of doing that would have taken me out of my ability to support other children as well, which I was doing the whole time. So, yeah, I I just couldn't change my spots. It really... Okay, so tell me about how you got Saru, particularly. So... Your eldest, isn't he? Yes, yes. So basically, um, once I realised something had changed, and that was because when my darling Marie appeared in front of me at work, so she was the most gorgeous little girl, brown, And there she was right in front of me. And I just, I was in shock. And then I thought, and then she just vanished again. And I thought, oh my God, where did that little brown girl come from? Because, you know, we still think in small town Hobart, brown was not common. And anyway, over the course of a 
couple of weeks, this little girl appeared and said hello to me and I found out her name. And then I spotted her with a mother and I knew the family. They lived locally. And I thought, uh-oh, hang on, there's something going on here. And so I talked to John about it and I made a phone call and, yes, there had been a change in the adoption regulations and we could apply. So really within days the, the process was started um, it all just, again, just seemed to flow along like it was meant to be. And we were lucky we had the support of an interstate uh, parent group that had been very active. You know, they were way ahead of us in Tasmania with what was going on. And before we knew it, we were looking at this little picture, little passport picture of Saru. How old was he when you got him? He was six. Yeah, wow. The thing, his age is always a little bit of a grey thing because his first mother says that he was four when he got lost, which would have made him five when he arrived. And I always felt he was a little bit younger because he came at six but with a full set of baby teeth and about 12 months later they started to all go, you know, and I'm watching all of this happening and no, no, no. I need to know how he walked into your life physically that day. Oh, right. Okay. Well, it was an evening. It was um, How were you feeling? Well, if I was just, my stomach was like, I'm sure I was going into contractions. <laughs> <laughs> it was bizarre. I just had like a vice-like grip on me and my, it was the tension of it was amazing. But it was it was sort of just a mixture of feeling. It was things like fear. You know, I'm sure there was fear. You know, I, it was that f- uh, fright or flight kind of adrenaline kind of thing happening and palpitations and, you know, really, I put a good face on it, but I tell you what, I was lucky I didn't pass out. I mean, it was really... <laughs> And, of course, I was also frightened. I didn't want to frighten him. You know, like if I started bawling and carrying on with this little boy in front of me for the first time he lays eyes on me and I'm going to be his mother and I'm a bawling wreck, you know, so I was really struggling to hold it together. But I did. And I was really outwardly, you know, when I looked at the photos afterwards, I thought, gee, I I sort of had it together then. I looked pretty cool. (laughs) On the outside, at least. Yes. Anyway, it was just, and the other thing is that once he was there and he was in front of me and I could hold him and feel his warm body, it just felt so normal, which, you know, I know a lot of people won't really believe that but for me it just felt so right so normal and there he was with a sticky hand and you know it was just so normal for me and you had everything ready you had it all set up yes and really I'd had to do all of that fairly quickly too because it was less than a pregnancy from applying to arrival so I had a premature child (laughs) I had to get everything ready quick yeah. Did you worry about, because I guess when you've, you have a newborn baby, whether it's yours or whether it's adopted, you're kind of learning together, you're growing together. Yes. But when you get somebody that's fully formed, I guess, as a child, as fully formed as a five or six-year-old can be, that I think would bring its own challenges, wouldn't it? 
Yes, and that's why I've always been super thankful to his first mark. Yeah. Because, you know, he had that calmness about him right from the beginning. Mm. And then I'm also thankful that by an absolute miracle of chance that when he was taken off the streets in Calcutta, you know, he had a brief period of time in Lillooa, which is where the police took the street kids. So he wasn't there very long. And at that time, it wasn't as bad as it became. And uh, so he really dodged a bullet there because soon Mrs. Sood came along and she visited Lillooa often just to sort of see what was going on there. She was a private organisation. She really was so intent on saving a child from... Is this the adoption agency? Yes. Yeah. So just by miracle, she came on a day and saw him there and said, what about that boy? Asked a few questions. And then before he knew it, he was being shifted to Navajavan, which was the home, the foundling home run by the Indian Society for Sponsorship and Adoption, which Saraj Sood was the founder of. So really, he was very fortunate because as soon as he got there, well, he was he had care, he was looked after, he was safe, and he could relax and take a deep breath. And because living on the streets does have a profound effect on children, just because they're living in this heightened state of fear and this all these adrenalines and cortisols that is, it eats away at a child. It stops their development, their emotional growth. And it's a tragedy. Mm. I've always felt very badly about street kids. I've just, it breaks my Tell me about your first week with Saru. So there he is. You've got him. He's the most beautiful boy. You bring him home. He's probably never been in a Western-style environment. Tell me about that. Tell me how you guys lived together for that first week. It really, we were so fortunate because he was just so compliant. Mm. You know, I just sort of lead him this way, sit him there. I mean, even from that very first night when we took him home from the airport, here he is with two people he hadn't set eyes on before, except in a photograph. And yet he allowed us to strip him down, Mm. wash him, put, you know, we had to treat his scabies. You know, he just stood there as quiet as a lamb. It was just I just thought any second he's going to start screaming and try and run from the room and if he tried to escape, what would we do? You know, there was a lot of anxiety on my part. Mm. So I said, no, he'll pick up on that if I'm stressed. I have to be calm. So from then on and through the first weeks particularly, I just forced myself to have this sense of calm because... I believe that this would transfer to him and that he would feel that energy. Mm-hmm. He had to feel it to react and respond to it because he didn't know a word of what we were saying. So he had no language at all? Barely nothing. He knew that we were going to be mum and dad and he knew thank you, hello, and basically that was it. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. What about practical things? Like, what were you feeding him? Because, I mean, of course, he's probably never eaten anything. No. Well, he basically just survived on rice, really, few veg thrown in. He was eating yeah. predominantly a vegetarian diet. So I also had studied up on that and figured out what would be best. And certainly an Indian diet would suit him very well with things like rice and dal and vegetables. Mm. But then I really wanted to get the protein into him as well. So I incorporated minced meat, fish, chicken, but I had to sort of, you know, say that his little tummy could cope with it because he just really had no um, experience of it. I didn't want to bind him up or give him a terrible stomach ache or mm. have him crying in pain from digestive issues. So I had actually learned quite a bit about that. So I just gradually fed him up. And, look, he just grew like a tree. It was quite astounding. He really responded to it once we sort of sorted out the few little health issues that he came with. There was no holding him back. And that put him in good stead because he also had an incredible immune system. And I was mindful of that. He was this little boy. He was all eyes and legs. He was as skinny as. But he was also about five years of age. He had survived. So he was a strong lad. There was no doubt about that. And so... That made life a lot easier. And, in fact, he never had an antibiotic or never needed one for an infection until he was 25 years of age. Yeah, wow. And I pat myself on the back a bit for that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Tell me, so what, so he, how soon did he start going to school? Really within a few weeks because there was no, at his age, we had to just get on with things. He had to integrate, learn quick as he had to start living his new life. And so I felt that it was really important for him to be amongst children again mm. and as quickly as he could. And he just took to school like a duck to water. I thought, oh, I'm going to have to just scrape him out of the car. He won't want to get out. You know, I thought this could be where he sort of has a meltdown, where he doesn't trust me or he gets frightened. He jumped out of that car in a flash. He just was raring to go. And, of course, I found out later, of course, that he'd longed to go to school, that he'd been so deprived. The nearest he'd got to school was, you know, looking through school gates at the nearest private school in his town. So he uh, loved it from really from day one. He had a great teacher. And really, at that time, he certainly was an oddity. There was actually only about four brown children there. And I use the term brown with love. I'm not a racial person. Brown includes everyone who's brown. 
Mm. Chocolate. <laughs> I don't, it doesn't mean a thing to me, but I was also mindful that these children would also get a little bit of a shock. So, but he did love school and, uh, you know, he very quickly started to speak English. It's amazing how resilient kids can be. My parents are Lebanese Australian and we, I was born here, but we came and went for a while. But my first memory of this country is when I was six and I started school and I did not have a word of English. I could not speak English at right. all. But, you know, it just came so quickly. It comes yes. so quickly at that age, doesn't it? I know. Well, Sari used to say this thing, and I don't know quite where it came from, but he would say he was learning like magic. Yeah. And it really was magical. It just seemed to blossom. And I don't know quite what the explanation for that is. And and it's interesting that you really don't understand how it happened. It's magic. <laughs> it is. There's something to it. You know, there is really something to it. <laughs> so then you've got this beautiful boy and you decide to have another one. Yes. Tell me about that. Well, that was really... How you know, many years later was it? We decided really about a two years, a year and a half after Saru was here, and mainly because we could see that he liked this idea. Mm-hmm. He had an understanding of how in families that generally at that time there's more than one child in a family. And, of course, he'd come from a family that was not just one child. So he obviously remembered that very clearly And we started talking about it. And the other thing is John and I were just so madly in love with this little boy that we just thought, oh, my goodness, this is our our new life and we're just so happy. And we thought, well, we know that there's masses of children that need families. In those days, there were a lot of children coming into Australia that were in need of a new family. And the programs were working well. The government departments were helping and aiding this process and it wasn't such a rarity anymore it's amazing what a couple of years can do so we applied and really in a way even though things were working well here in India things started to go a bit pear-shaped and then in turn it all started the boat got rocked this end as well and just with this combination of um, processes and changes that were occurring, it made bringing Mantrosh home so much harder. And, you know, I've put quite a bit about that in my book because, you know, I sort of liken it to my kind of IVF nightmare. (laughs) You know, it was one of those things that... The process was harder. Yes. It really, you know, in a way could have said, oh, this isn't meant to happen You know, there are a lot of things that you could read into it. But again, once we sort of made this decision, we uh, couldn't turn back and we didn't know that the process would go pear-shaped. So that was hard. Anyway. So then there's the three of you at the airport this time. Yes. To be Yes. Right. And how old was Mantush when you got him? He was now nine. Wow. Okay. So was he older than... Yes. So when we were first offered uh, Mantosh, he was about seven. Right. So he was a tiny little boy. He was in reasonable health, but he was, you know, doing it tough. He was in an awkward and quite dangerous family situation. And he thought 
everything would be fine from then on, that he would be rescued and saved. And it wasn't like that at all this time around. Mm. It got worse, you know, when we couldn't get through the court and it all, it really seriously went pear-shaped. And the ramifications of that are profound. So even to this day, there's, it cannot be undone. So it's a sad situation. Mm. It's really quite a tragic thing that happened to our family and particularly to him. So tell me about how the boys got on. So you're at the airport and you're picking them up. Because now you've got, you're not just worrying about you and your, your, your husband, but you, you're building a family here. And how does that work with Saru and Mantosh? You know, are they going to get on? Are they not going to get on? Because they're really established personalities now, yes, aren't they? they are. Established people, yeah. And really at that stage, um, Saru was very settled. Mm. Um, he'd always been very calm, but he was very relaxed and at ease in our family. And then suddenly this person comes into our family, a little person, with such extreme difficulties and really we were in the deep end from then on. It was really, you know, I could see at first sight, I, I just quietly thought, oh, shit, this is going to be a problem mm-hmm. because... Often you can be told things and you sort of think, oh, you know, we'll be fine, we'll manage or so forth and so forth. But when you lay eyes on a child that has become so damaged, mm. you can't deny what's in front of you and that was what we were faced with. But that said, our commitment was not reduced by that knowledge. It just meant that we would have to try and call on more resources and strength than we thought possible. And it's, at times we did not have enough. It was not possible. And we had many years where things were really very difficult. Was that behaviour? So, yes, yes. Mm. So, you know, we weren't invincible. We were just like any other family. Of course. And in a way, the worst part of it was is that it was very visible, that suddenly, you know, there we were, this family of four, and we were struggling. You know, there's a lot of things that go on in families behind closed doors and that no one's aware of. It's not that easy to hide a dysfunctional child, either in the home situation, out in public, in the school system. It's not easy. And very soon it was really awful. It really was. It was such a hard, hard time. Mm. And how is he now? He's, he's good at the moment, so he's working in our business. He's got a lovely partner of three years and they're getting on fine and he's really got himself together. And I'm very proud of him for that because a lesser person would not have risen from what he had on his plate. So, yeah. He's, Do you think it might be good parenting? I sort of trust that that, that that might have had an effect. I don't want to be smug about it. But I think at the end of the day, once kids get to a certain age, it's down to them. Mm. It really is. You're the that back- is so true. I agree with that. It's, you're the backup plan yeah. when things go pear-shaped. But at the end of the day, until the person actually reaches that point of, hey, yeah, I'm going to do this different. So even though his capacity and potential isn't what I would have liked it to have been, it's his life now and he's living it 
and he's happy. Yes. So that's good. I'm really pleased um, with that. It sort of gives me a lot of comfort every day and particularly, you know, now that Saru's living in Spain, it sort of gives me a connection. And, you know, he's just really, Mantosh is very sensitive too because he sees and picks up when you're struggling a bit. Mm. And just, you know, a short while ago he said, Mum, don't worry. He said, I'll always be here and I'll always look after you Love because it. he knows how it's hurt. You know, it's tough. Love it. Hey, listen, I am a little bit starstruck, so I want to know, firstly, how did you feel when you found out that Nicole Kidman was playing you in the film? And two, did you get to meet her? Yes, I met her quite a few times. And really she was wonderful to me and she really helped me through the film process because let's face it it's not an ideal situation having a film made about yourself and your family so she was very sensitive to that and sort of in the beginning when we were talking Saru had been told that hey this might be a film you know you never know someone will come up with an offer or whatever and we had a bit of fun with who would play us respectively and straight away I said Nicole because I really think she's just she's my fave Mm, Aussie actress yes so I just put that out there to the heavens and yes please yes (laughs) and it came about so she wanted the role she saw there was offered she accepted yes and it's a role I think she still holds dear to her heart in fact, I just watched an interview lately with Margaret Pomerantz and her, and I could tell by the, the way she mentioned Lion. It was, you know, because she can do any role she wants, basically, and she picks and chooses. You know, people say, oh, that was a terrible film, blah, blah. I don't take any notice of that. She's a professional actress. She can do whatever she likes. She doesn't have to get typecast in the same old, same old. And she does the weird and wonderful. And, and did she come and spend time with you? She wanted to meet me first up when she came to Sydney for the launch of uh, Paddington Bear. Mm-hmm. So I flew over to have a meeting with her. This was her request. She felt yeah. she had to meet me. So, oh, oh, yay. So over I went and met her in her penthouse and... She was lovely right from the beginning and so normal and natural. Yeah. It was a good reality check for me because she is a woman. She's got, she's flesh and blood just like any other woman. And she's a mum. She's a mother. She's adopted. She's smart, feisty, clever, and I just, we just clicked And we've kept in touch ever since, so just by emailing. So we had that meeting. Uh, Then she asked if I would allow to be filmed and interviewed by her colleague. Um, So he came to Hobart and we spent days together and he recorded and filmed me to practice my way of speaking and so forth to help her in the role. And I really respected that Mm. because, you know, she was making the effort Absolutely. And quite honestly, I think she did a really good job. So do I. I loved it. I really feel that, you know, her efforts to become me paid off. And if there were parts that maybe didn't come close to the mark, that was not her fault. She was playing a role as directed. She was dressed by a makeup artist. She had wigs made by a wig person. She was, you know, all this image of her on the screen being me was created 
externally by other people, which she had to comply with. But the emotion and the acting that she brought to the screen being me, I couldn't fault. How did you feel watching it? It really rocked me Mm. because, you know, until I'd done a few interviews with Saru, I had no idea what my voice even sounded like, Mm. which sounds a bit corny, but, you know, we know our voice as it comes into our skull and ears and we really don't have a true idea of what it sounds like to other people. So that was a real shock to me. But the thing was, when we first saw the film, the overriding emotion was shock about Saru's life being portrayed. That first five years where he couldn't tell us, we didn't know, and there it was portrayed by this gorgeous little boy who was so like Saru, it was spooky. We had a big shock. And, um, you know, every time that film comes on, I constantly get messages from people. Like I've had a, had two, la- three yesterday, last night, because apparently Lion was on SBS World Movies last night. Oh, I love that film. Oh, my goodness. You know, so all these, I get these calls and messages and I didn't know it was on because I just sort of a bit out of the loop with all of that. But, you know, I'm proud that the story still has an effect and sort of looking at media I think it's sort of getting to be a little bit of a have a little cult following Mm. this story Mm. that people are getting more from it each time they see it and I really in fact I've only looked at it right from beginning to end about three times because it is quite tough for me. It must be confronting absolutely. It is it's really Hard. And so you've gone on to write your own book. Uh, it's called Lioness. Congratulations, Sue. I mean, you've really, it's, it's, it can't be easy putting your life out there like that. No. Um, but it's a great book. So awesome. as I said, congratulations. And thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciated it. Thanks for having me. I've been watching your site and uh, from the other side. <laughs> yeah. So I like what you guys do over there with your little company yeah we do we do great book recommendations it is a bit on the unique side so it is it is indeed because we've got lovely readers that love to read i'm sure they will enjoy lioness very much thank you for your time today i hope so thanks very much then cheryl if you'd like more information about better reading follow us on facebook or visit betterreading.com.au This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app Join your local public library and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.